Hey guys, I had Brian and Shelby Matisic on the show with me this week. Uh, Brian and Shelby are the bra and the LB of Brelby Theatre up in Glendale. Uh, Brelby focuses a lot on new work development, uh, so they provide a lot of opportunities for um, new and upcoming artists in the Phoenix area to have their work shown, which I'm sure you know is a huge uh, thing for me. Um, so I was really excited to have them get on the show and talk to me a little bit about their process, how they um, communicate with other actors in the, the area, and how they brought their own company up from the ground. Uh, they were actually NAU students uh, where I went to school. They were a couple years before me. Um, so we have a lot of mutual friends that uh, they've worked with before in the past, Luke Gomez, a previous guest of ours. Um, so I was really excited to get the chance to sit down with them in their new theater and uh, talk a little bit about what they do. So I hope you enjoy Brian and Shelby Matisic. All right, welcome back to the Starving Artist Phoenix. I'm Tony Machete. I'm with Brian and Shelby Matisic today. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you guys for meeting me. Um, we are in the house of their lovely new theater, which you guys have not had that long now, right? We're coming up right on a year of this space being yeah. open. Yeah. It's exciting. Okay, that's cool. So, and what's interesting about the space that I, I remember you guys talking about when you first created was that there's there's two different sections to it. You guys have a main stage that you have running and a studio space, too. So, what was the appeal behind that, I guess? Why, why have two separate entities in your own theater? Well, that's partially an in-process. Uh, right now, we have our main stage upstairs, which allows us to do our a large production, uh, full set costume, light, sound, the whole shebang. Uh, the long-term intent is to have a fully operational, super intimate black box in the downstairs space, which would seat about 35. Uh, we do have some renovations we have to do to make sure it's accessible before we can fully open it to the public. So we use it as kind of a, a rehearsal space and classroom space for the short term. Uh, but in the long term, it relates to our whole focus on providing opportunities for artists, specifically playwrights. Uh, by having a studio series, it allows shows that maybe aren't quite ready for the full production treatment to still get up on their feet and still be fully produced, just with more stripped down production aspects so that it can benefit the production the development of the show. Yeah, I think it's really common for playwrights to get sort of stuck in this cycle in the industry where they get these workshops and then nothing really happens after the workshop. And so we wanted to make sure that there was at least a, a production, even if we couldn't throw thousands of dollars of worth of production costs at the show, at least it would get a full rehearsal process, a full cast, some elements of design. Um, and we actually are not doing a studio series next year. So because we've placed such a heavy focus on new work development, a good chunk of our season really is local playwrights. And so it's sort of merged together now. And so until we actually can open the downstairs space fully, we're going to sort of put the studio series on pause and just sort of focus on all of the primary shows, which includes quite a few originals next year as well. So I noticed that this season, um, just or at least the, the calendar year, you guys had eight of the 13 plays that you guys are doing were 
considered world premieres in some way or another. That's not counting the Night of Schwartz or the Miscast. Um, so, I mean, it seems like you guys are already at focus pretty heavily on that. So, I mean, what what's the thought process behind that? Why do you feel like that's such a focus for you? I, I think it's multifold. Uh, initially, uh, I started out as a playwright. Shelby's a playwright also. And we looked around Arizona, and we love the work that all the theaters do, but we also saw that we were seeing 12 productions of Hairspray per year. <laughs> and we know that there's so much good original work, and we're not see- we weren't seeing uh, much in the way of support for the playwrights in Arizona, and we knew they were there. So that's kind of how it originally started, as a way to produce the works we were writing and then looking for other playwrights. It's grown from there. Uh, to now we have a, a, a company member whose focus is new play development, uh, John Perovich, who has an MFA from ASU in playwriting, uh, who runs a monthly write club. And depending on the month, we have anywhere from six to 15 playwrights meet just to get together, support each other and share what they're working on. Uh, we've commissioned a lot of works. We've done open calls and had several hundred scripts come pouring in. So there's a lot of really talented playwrights in Arizona, and it was a platform to support that because we feel like that's the future for Arizona theater. I'm glad you kind of brought up the open call as well, because that's something I'm really curious about. When you're somebody who does kind of brand themselves as a a new works theater, like how do you make those decisions about who to get behind? (laughs) Is that such a tough question? I mean, it's really a lot of it has to do with gut feelings. Like, I mean, when it came to just producing plays that were submitted, I would pull together like a reading team and we would kind of go through the play and I would get people's, feedback from our organization who've been with us and had some level of background in scripts analysis. (laughs) Um, But when it comes to commissioning, a lot of it has to do with people who um, have been involved with us. So we've seen their work ethic, who have probably participated in Write Club or been on one of our group writing projects before. Usually at least once a year, we do like a, a, a writing team show. So it's like anywhere from five to, gosh, what was the biggest one? We had a group of I think it was Rosie's. It was like nine, right? Yeah. Nine or ten. Yeah. So we do like a collaborative writing project every year. I'm not really sure why. We just sort of started doing it and really liked it. And so we've kept doing it. I think part of it was as a writer development tool. So it started out, we had a couple of people who were like, I want to write a play. That sounds terrifying. And so it was a way to kind of bring them in and say, okay, well, you don't have to carry the whole burden, but you should do this. You're creative. Let's put some people together work on a project to show that you really are capable of this and then it's a way to push them to realize they can and push them to the next level of taking on their own projects yeah so i think there are a lot of factors into what goes into what we choose it can be um based on us trusting an artist really heavily like john perovich um is gosh what what was unexpected was that his second or third i think that was his third third his third play we'd produce we have one of his going up next year and he's on a collaborative writing project next year And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we've seen what he's capable of and now we feel confident really throwing all of our energy at producing his works. Um, Some of the things we commission are thematic or topical. So we did a show called After Hours at Rosie's Pub two years ago, three? Uh, About a year and a half. More recent than that. Okay. It was middle of last year. It's really all blending together (laughs) for me at this point. It was either the last or the second to last show in our old space before we started moving over to this venue yeah we you know i had a lot of conversations in grad school and with a lot of my artists about how it really felt like a lot of the issues that women were facing uh, were really underrepresented in the theater scene and in new works and on the stages in phoenix and so 
we decided to just write a play that was literally all about women's issues. And so it went over really well. And we're actually doing a sequel to it next year. So that'll be interesting. (laughs) So is the idea to bring back the same all-female writing team for the second one? No, it's actually been an open call. So, you know, if you happen to post this before Friday and people want to apply, they totally can. Um, (laughs) But I think we'll probably have one or two returners from that writing team, but it's going to be mostly fresh faces. So overall, you don't feel like there's like an aesthetic that you guys try to go along with? There are some like, there are some undercurrents that we really enjoy in the type of theater we produce. So it's not really an overall aesthetic that we ascribe to, but when we're afforded the opportunity, we really enjoy scripts that have kind of a scrappy feel to them. So people playing multiple parts or simple sets where the cast is kind of creating the world as the play is going on. Or we also love nerd theater. We do love nerd theater. <laughs> We've done She Kills Monsters, which is a and d play. We did a world premiere called, um, I don't know, uh, the comic book one. Fangirl. Fangirl, <laughs> uh, which was about a group of female cosplayers. And it's, it's something yeah. we really enjoy because almost all the artists working here are all unabashedly, proudly giant nerds. So when we get to do a piece of theater that speaks to that side of us too, it's a lot of fun. But we also love the heavy dramas. We did a a really intense, uh, politically driven show by Luke Gomez uh, this year called Blacklisters. So it's a really wide range and we really try to touch on a lot of different topics and do a a wide variety of type of material. So we do super violent political thrillers like Blacklisters (laughs) and then we're doing a Midsummer Night's Dream and we did the super fluffy but fun Putnam County Spelling Bee so it's a wide variety So I want to circle back a little bit more to that probably later on but something you were talking about there did kind of spur a question in me that I'm curious about so like when it comes to picking these pieces too you said you said like you like your, the, spra- the scrappier pieces excuse me so the ones that um, a lot of is driven by the actors there's multiple roles stuff like that does like production budget have a pretty large role in that or I think initially it really did I mean we mm-hmm. kind of started from very little and funded ourselves for the most part right. we're not a nonprofit, um, and so really a lot of it was just us figuring it all out but then it just sort of became our niche a little bit and we we got to see Peter and the Starcatcher on Broadway and I think it was this like hallelujah chorus moment when we saw it it was just this like beautiful example of like the perfect ensemble creating with super minimal pieces and it was like oh yeah this is like this is what theater can be i mean i love seeing big flashy musicals don't get me wrong like i can get swept up in any of it but there's something about when you can really draw an audience in and they believe that a rope is a window or that like a piece of fabric is the sail on a ship and you've become the ship there's something about it that's just like something inherently theatery about it it. yeah and and it's just like you get chills if it's done right. Well, and part of it is it invites the audience to engage with the material, as opposed to when you're watching on some, something on TV and you just kind of turn your brain off and let it happen. It's inviting the audience to be a part of why the show is special because they have to engage their imagination and imagine along with the cast. So I think that's a big part of why it speaks to us. But as, to that point, we have done more expensive shows. The set behind you took a stupid amount of time to build and has levels all over the place. So we do some of the bigger shows. We've had revolving set pieces. We did the importance of being earnest and it was a steampunk set with interlocking cog platforms that moved on their own. We've, we do that also, but I don't know, the scrappy side just really speaks to our artistic sensibilities, I guess. And we feel like it connects with, with the audience in a really different way. 
it's a different challenge for the artists involved too. There's something there's something more about exercising your acting muscles when you have to help create the whole world instead of just not that it's not e- you know it's, I'm not saying it's easy <laughs> to like just be in regular shows with beautiful sets, but there's something really thrilling and challenging as an actor I think when you have to really be responsible for more than just that one element. I think that also speaks to the original work side of things, too. I mean, when you do a work that no one has done for, you don't have source material to pull from. You can't go pull up a YouTube clip of the last 400 Seymours in yeah. Little Shop of Horrors and be like, I'm going to do that. Yeah. You have to really do your work and understand the characters and work collaboratively with the whole team and the directors and the writers to kind of create this world from scratch, which is super freeing and exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess on the flip side, there's no expectations for you as well. Like if, it's true. <laughs> sure. Yeah. sure. I mean, I, just going on that, like if there were no, if somebody decided that they were going to do a completely different model of a Seymour that didn't look anything like a Venus flytrap or anything like <laughs> that, then they, they couldn't do that because yeah. there's an expectation that they have to meet. That's true. So. Mm-hmm. I, and I think our audiences sort of respond to that too. Like we, mm-hmm. we have a lot of folks who really appreciate the opportunity to see something they haven't seen anywhere else. And mm-hmm. they tend to, I don't know, they tend to really reward the actors when they help create that brand new world for them. Mm-hmm. They, they enjoy it. And then I want to talk about those actors, too, and the, uh, the idea that they not only, like, kind of figuratively create the world on stage with them, but they're also kind of expected to literally do it, talking about this set behind us and stuff. You you guys say on your website that um, you want them to be kind of, you, you believe in a well-rounded theater practitioner, I guess, and you kind of expect that from people that join the company. So elaborate a little bit on that with me. Where that come from? What do you guys look for? Well, that comes from a lot of places. Uh for one, our background going through our undergrad at NEU in the theater department, that was kind of an expectation there. They expected you to learn all aspects. Um, and really what it gets down to is kind of a level of respect and understanding. So if, you, if you're if you an actor first, that's wonderful. But if you know how to build a set or what's involved in designing a costume or what a director is thinking about or what a stage manager deals with in hurting all the cats during the course of a show, <laughs> it gives you a vocabulary to work in a much more efficient, respectful way that if you know where someone else is coming from, you can both deal with your needs but be respectful of someone else's and if you notice someone is struggling it gives you the opportunity to really step up and help them out which creates kind of uh, a really unique bond within every production team that really benefits the show the company as a whole and really the overall artistic community uh speaking to that front we have over on the wall there which is too far away for me to see with my slowly (laughs) aging eyes uh, we have like a 12 or 15 point manifesto that kind of encapsulates what we think the ideal theater artist should strive for, like their behaviors and how they interact with the theater, each other, the, the community at large. So what are some of the bullet points from then? What did that? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, desperately well, look over so it. Then. Were, <laughs> and this list was created by our artists. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just like Brian and I were like, here's all the things we need to do now. <laughs> no, we went on this like big yeah. leadership retreat for a whole weekend mm-hmm. and we all put it together. Um, so... We give 100% every time, we're uplifting, we keep moving forward, uh, we actively listen to each other. It's a, I mean, a lot of it's like, it feels a little reminiscent of like, I was an RA in undergrad, so a lot of it's very <laughs> res life feeling, but it's worked really well and it served us really well to have these like guidelines to just sort of like be kind artists mm-hmm. to each other and to respect where everyone's coming from. Which has been really rewarding because we've had multiple artists who, after having their first experience here, will stay and do like six shows consecutively Mm -hmm. just because they enjoy the atmosphere so much because we go out of our way to try to make it as supportive as possible. Because Mm -hmm. to be blunt, 
life is hard, the arts are hard. In Arizona, both of those things are especially hard sometimes. So to find a community and be involved in a community that is actively rooting for each other and no one's trying to get ahead by pushing anyone else down is really an amazing thing. Yeah, I also think that the well-rounded theater artist thing was... uh... One of the nice things about NAU is that they, they really try to set you up to like make a living when you get out. Even if you can't do that just acting, it's part of the mentality is, well, if you know how to like work in a scene shop, maybe you can supplement your acting with a side gig, right? And so for a lot of our artists, we know in all reality that Arizona is probably not their permanent goal of where they want to create art. I hope more people change their minds over the next couple of years, but... <laughs> we're a stepping stone for a lot of people. And so if we can help prepare them and get them ready, if they go to New York or LA or Seattle, that they could get a side job in the arts, even if it's not just acting, then I feel like we've, we've made more of an impact or we better serve them as, a, as an mm-hmm. artist. Because growth is important to us. And even if they don't stay with us forever, if we've helped them on their road to becoming the artists they're going to be, I feel like that's a success. So that's, that's addressing kind of the them going out on the on the end of it but what about like coming into your your company initially now that's i mean you you talk a lot about how it's a really close knit com- community and like people stick around and, and like stay a long time so how do people get their foot in the door you know that's i think that's something a lot of young actors are worried about you know it's taking that first really step it's really easy actually and <laughs> one of the things is yes we have this really tight knit core company that has admin responsibilities outside of just doing the shows that helps the theater keep running But one of their primary things is being open and welcoming to new artists and encouraging them to take risks. Uh, We do open auditions for every single show we do. Uh, We have open calls for the majority of our design slots. Uh, We're constantly looking for qualified stage managers. So any qualified (laughs) stage managers out there, we do a ridiculous number of shows and have lots of opportunities to work on new works, which is something you don't get to do a lot of places. Um, But... Following us on Facebook is one of the best things you can do. We have a specific Brelby Theater Company group separate from our fan page where we post all of our audition notice, all of our calls for volunteers, all of our designer calls. Everything's there as well as on our website. But honestly, reach out. And if you're curious and you don't know where you fit in and you think, man, I want to try that acting thing or, you know, I think I could be good at costume design. Multiple occasions we've met with people and kind of sussed out where their interests might be and set them up in an assistantship or kind of working in tandem with an established designer so they can kind of try their hand in it, learn under them, and see if it's something they want to pursue further. So the biggest thing is show up. We're here doing art constantly and have lots of opportunities, and we'd love to see as many people come out and get involved as possible. So as much time as they're willing to to commit to it, as much as they're willing to put in, you're going to accept. Interesting. Okay, cool. So, I mean, uh, going back to what you were saying as well about kind of being a stepping stone. So that's an interesting... uh, I guess vibe that I, I feel like a lot of people address like Phoenix with is that like we're a big enough city that there's a lot of opportunities, but it's not big enough that people want to stay here forever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And that's one of our biggest long-term goals is to create an environment where artists can le- le- earn a living staying here and working in their primary art. But we don't have any delusions. We know that's a long road. One of the biggest things we need to do is develop and uh, find the audience. And that starts with, developing and finding the artists first and then going out and educating the community um and we know that's a long road we're nowhere near there yet we make sure everyone involved gets some level of like fuel stipend to help them get to shows 
But we also try to set it up in a way where our artists, if they're actively promoting shows, can help increase their own stipend. So while we're not in a position to pay them what we would love to be paying them, or ourselves anything at this point, <laughs> uh, it's a way of recognizing that, you know, we're trying to reach this end goal. And if you're helping us get there, we want to see that you're rewarded and that we do value your time in addition to the energy we're putting into helping develop you as an artist. So we've had artists who, through using referral codes and promoting the shows that they're involved in, have doubled and tripled their initial stipends by, based on their involvement. So it's a way of encouraging the artists in Arizona to help develop the community and develop the art scene beyond that. Like direct incentive, basically, for giving back. Yeah. Basically, yeah. But it's also about educating the artists that mm -hmm. it's, as artists in Arizona, one of our biggest responsibilities, aside from saying true to art and working on it, is advocating for our art and telling the community around us why they need to come see it, not just griping about, oh, no one's showing up. We as artists have to go out and say, hey, I'm doing this show and it's good. You should really come support local art because there's amazing art in Arizona. And unfortunately, a lot of people just don't know through no fault of their own. They just haven't been reached and we need to figure out how to reach them. Yeah, it's there are a lot of factors that go into why some people haven't quite made it to the art scene yet. You know, there are their divisions people don't have as much access to media outlets as others and they don't have the same funds available to attend and so we've we've been working really hard to try and bridge those gaps and there are a lot of other local organizations too that are really trying to make arts as accessible as possible no matter what your socioeconomic status is or what your interests are there's a huge variety of different types of art across the valley I mean, just in our house, we cover everything from the classics to really edgy, weird new stuff. But across the valley, you can get pretty much anything you might be looking for is happening in Arizona. It's just a matter of knowing where to look and what you're looking for. Yeah, and I definitely, like, if you're not already following phoenixstages.com, here's my plug. Follow phoenixstages.com. Gil is so good about making sure that everyone knows about all of the shows that are coming up. And if you're an actor, you should be following durantcom.com. Mm -hmm. Like, Laura Absolutely. Durant is... That was last week's episode. Yeah, she's, she's incredible. She advocates for the scrappy groups, and it's needed sometimes when you first get your footing to have that sort of support Absolutely. system. It's but, all, oh, go ahead. It's also really important to recognize that the arts are a lot more accessible, especially in Arizona, than people realize. So, I mean, it doesn't cost a lot to go to a play in Arizona. And for us, in particular, we built a whole program about trying to create a system that was accessible for people. So we have a program called Shogo, that is kind of like a Netflix for live theater type situation. So basically you subscribe for $12 a month, and then as long as your subscription is active, you can come to anything we produce as many times as you want. So for $12 a month, you can come to all 14 of our productions this year or any of the improv shows that we do twice a month or any of our special events, which, I mean, if you're going to one show every other month, pays for itself. And if you're going to more than that, it becomes the best value in live art in Arizona. So... <laughs> If you're someone who thinks that you can't afford to go to theater, that's not true. There's a lot of options, and we're not the only group that tries to make it accessible. Yeah. So, nice. All right. So, what was the appeal for you guys then originally to set up shop here? Uh, do you want to handle this, or do you want me? Okay. So, uh, <laughs> obviously, we Shelby and I met and decided we wanted to start a theater company while we were going to school in NAU. 
I and we came down and in, initially our first summer out of NAU, uh, we started the company and we did a couple of shows touring around and lost so much money, <laughs> but on the bright side learned so very much about what it was we thought was valuable, what we wanted to strive for, and what the company was that we were going to become. Um, we started out renting out venues around the valley for our first uh, three years or so, two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, which was fine, but it's really expensive to rent venues for a weekend at a time. It's And we realized pretty quickly that for what it costs to rent a venue for one weekend, you can have a small storefront for more than an entire month. So it was just a couple of hurdles to get through opening costs and finding some people to give us loans and things like that to get started. But we knew we wanted to set roots down here, one, because both of our families are Arizona-based. And we, not only that, we saw a need for more arts in Arizona. So there's this huge vacuum. Again, we're a huge city, but there's nowhere near as much art as there could be or should be to service this level of a community. And when we came to downtown Glendale for Glendale Glitters one day, we like fell in love immediately because it's super walkable. It reminded us a little bit of downtown Glendale, but it had this... Yeah, downtown Flagstaff. Um, I have noticed it's similar to downtown Glendale as well, though. Yeah, yeah and it, but it also had this really incredible, like, small town feel while in the middle of the city. Uh, for example, we hit some uh, some roadblocks with red tape and city planning and contractors getting our first space open, and all of the merchants that were around the space we were renting offered to let us perform on their back patios or in their lobbies or on their front porches just so we could keep revenue going so that we could keep trying to get through the construction process. So it's this incredible community down here that supports each other and wants the area to succeed and is super excited about supporting the arts or other young entrepreneurs or uh, anything of that nature that enriches the community. So it's it's kind of an incredible place. Nice. So let's take that then and, and go back a little more into your guys' lives individually. So um, how did you how did you come into the, the theater world? Was it always theater first or was it? I was a dancer yeah. first. I was a little hip-hop dancer as a kid, but I always... <laughs> Knew I was destined for the spotlight. <laughs> no, I, I started doing theater in middle school, and somehow it just sort of stuck. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly why. I also was a band kid. I liked all the arts a lot. Theater was really kind of just the strongest thing for me. I think I always was a theater kid. I just never really realized it. <laughs> um, I was always a ham and very energetic as a kid. I did umpteen billion sports. I did soccer and golf and baseball and was involved in Boy Scouts and my church and everything. I don't think I was ever home, basically. Um, But I was always a ham, and I would be performing for friends and family, making the jokes, whatever. But I never really thought about theater until my mom made me in freshman year. It was like, oh, you should take theater. You'd be good at this. So I did that, and I enjoyed it. um, But I was still dead set on working for NASA as, like, (laughs) uh, an astrophysicist all the way up until, like, my junior year of high school. Um, And unfortunately, we lost my theater teacher when I was – over Christmas break that year and I got pulled in to help the permanent sub like figure out what to teach the lower level classes and it kind of sealed my interest in it Mm -hmm. and I actually founded my first theater troupe that summer uh, after my junior year founded my first theater company the following year and leased my first venue and produced my first uh, full-length original piece when I was 18 so I pretty much from like the end of high school on, I knew what I wanted to be doing was promoting original work and producing theater and providing opportunities for other artists. So it was, it was writing and acting from the beginning then? Uh, writing actually came out of necessity uh, because I couldn't afford the rights for other shows. <laughs> so um, really, more than anything, it was about connecting with and entertaining an audience. So it was a combination of the acting and directing at first. 
I, and then I fell in love with writing. And I think that's kind of my primary focus, but I still, I don't know that I can ever get a master's degree because I can never pick which of the three I want to do it in. Um, because I, I go through waves of, I love all three, so it's hard to pick, but it definitely started with acting and directing and then segued into writing when I realized how much I enjoyed it. I think, I think at NAU, that was really cemented by your involvement with Arizona Playmakers. Mm-hmm. So I know that they do provide a lot of good opportunities for people who want to try out playwriting and stuff. Yeah, like that, yeah, that group was about to die when we were there, and then Brian got in voted my, in as president, in, and it sort of solidified. Sorry, I'm going to cut you off a few more times. Go ahead. <laughs> in my freshman year, Arizona Playmakers was down to three members, um, and the, the existing leadership had decided they were just going to let it go because they basically met once a week to discuss where they were going to have coffee next, and they weren't doing anything. So the following year, I and one other member decided we were going to try to revamp it because it was like the oldest established student organization at NAU, and mm-hmm. we decided we couldn't let it die. So. I was president of that organization for two and a half years and led the charge to re-up the, uh, the constitution of the organization. We brought in new officers and we really uh, refocused it on supporting new original plays. So we had la- relaunched the first time it had d- done a new works festival uh, in that first year after that. And we did a 10-minute play series, then we did a one-act series, and then it kind of grew out from there. And it was nice to be able to hand it off. My senior year, I didn't have to run it because I was at it had grown to a point that it had so many people who were excited about it that I was able to hand it off and kind of focus on what my next step was going to be after college. So it still makes me really excited when I still see how active it currently is still at NEU doing 24-hour theater festivals and everything else that they do. And I, I, I see that you guys are also doing like a miscast concert as well, which mm-hmm. I know that was that was something that, that pulled from the college experience as well. So, I mean, would you... I brought that to oh. NAU, actually. <laughs> um, I... I went on a trip to New York with two of my fellow Alpha Psi Omega girls, and we stayed with a friend of mine at Columbia, and they were doing a miscast concert, and we're like, what is this? <laughs> and so after we heard all about it, we decided, like, this sounds like a really fun, weird thing to do. Let's do it and raise some funds for a charity. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's still going on or not at NAU, but yeah, it was something where, like, I had so much fun doing it with my friends in undergrad that I wanted to try it here. And it's, it's one of our more popular things for, for the artists that we do every year here because, again, as a miscast, they get to do things they would never mm-hmm. normally get to actually perform for an audience, mm-hmm. um, whether it's against type or against age or gender or whatever it is. Uh, it's a really fun way for artists to get to really push their boundaries and do something different. It's so. also a smaller commitment yes. than a typical show, <laughs> which is like a nice perk for a lot of them who maybe really set limits on how many shows they're able to manage with a full-time job in a year. Uh, so a lot of them look forward to doing this cast because it means, you know, like two weeks of rehearsal instead of four or five. And Well, that's something that I think is interesting too. So, I, you know, around town you have a, one or two 24-hour theater festivals, excuse me, maybe a couple um, short, short play series. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what do you feel like the value is of those kind of like un... I, Unnatural. I don't know. I don't know what the word I'm going for, but yeah, kind of the the non sequitur ones that that kind of go around these theater opportunities. I, as far as opportunities or as far as the creation of new work. Well, I mean, I guess it's just a value in general. What what do you see as the value of not doing just a play when you're theater? I think it's a great way for yeah. artists to kind of stay on top of their game. It's a shorter commitment. They can do something really different than what they normally do, which forces them sometimes to find a new love or yeah. forces them to think of things in a different way or be exposed to different ideas. And that's really valuable to a performer or a director or a playwright to 
have your preconceived notions challenged or just to be thrown into a haphazard, completely different environment, it opens up new pathways and new ideas and can be really enriching. Yeah, sharpening your skills can always be a good thing. I'm about to, I don't know if this has been announced or not. Oh, well, sorry, John. Um, (laughs) I'm writing for Now and Then's. 24-hour theater. I didn't tell you that, did I? No. Surprise. Um, (laughs) So I'm writing for a 24-hour theater festival. It's coming up in early September for Now and Then Creative Company, which is a pretty new group in town. Um, And I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a really exciting way to, like, to force myself to sharpen my playwriting skills. And I'm pretty horrible about deadlines when it comes to playwriting. (laughs) Like, when I really sit down and write, I can write pretty fast. But it's hard to get myself in the zone sometimes and so this is going to really like really force me to (laughs) the other benefit of it aside from kind of forcing yourself with help deadlines or challenging yourself is it's one of the best networking opportunities Mm -hmm. for performers and directors Mm -hmm. and playwrights that's out there right now in arizona because they serve as kind of a magnet you get people from all the different artistic communities around the valley get drawn into these little festivals and you might get to work with a director for the first time and build that relationship that pays off when you get to work with them in such and such biz, big musical down the road and they remember you or they you start to develop those working relationships with artists you might not otherwise get the opportunity to get in front of or to develop that with. That's true. Networking is key. <laughs> it is times. And it's so important to like put yourself in those environments and work with those people but do it in a respectful way so that they want to work with you again. Like, I mean, it's, it's a trope but you're always auditioning. Like mm-hmm. the way you treat each other and the way you talk about each other when people are around or when people aren't around, like if you're not constantly building each other up and hoping for the best and putting your best foot forward, that can cause some major stumbling blocks. And conversely, if you are doing those things, people will be tripping over themselves to try to find opportunities to work with you because they know it's going to be a positive, good experience. It is worth noting that like one of the first responses that you gave to when when we were having this interview was saying that you sometimes decide which new works you're going to do based on how much you trust the artist. So, Mm It goes back to that, so it goes full circle there. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> Absolutely. And some of those artists, some of the playwrights, the first things we saw from them, we did, uh, uh, we used to do, and I'm hoping we bring them back as we our season settles down. This year was really nuts because we had to make sure that we were balancing the needs of all the costs of the new building. Um, so we kind of were producing at breakneck speed. Again, 14 productions in one year is kind of borderline masochistic. <laughs> um, so we are scaling back slightly next year, which we're hoping we can bring back some of our old standards. But we did uh, creative challenges where it's almost like a 24-hour festival, except you have a week. So we give you like props and a prompt or something like yeah, that it's like a you, week early. You get a team together, and when you pay the entrance fee, I give you a manila envelope that has like all of your stuff in it and then you have a week to create something together and bring it to the competition and they were weird and wonderful but it was <laughs> so weird. it was a great time it was kind of a like a less pressure 24-hour theater fest mm-hmm. basically but some of our uh, some of our writers that were writing for the first time we got to know them through that process and the relationship grew out from there and some of them were almost begrudgingly like what do you mean i'm a playwright i'm not a playwright yeah okay come join this writer's team do this thing you should do this yeah Interesting. Okay. So do you feel like you are in in that same vein, like looking for different levels of potential in people that they might not be thinking about? So, Because I know that you, you have some people who are writing for you this year who were actors before, designers before, that type of thing. Well, Definitely. We had uh, one of my favorite scripts that we have done all year, maybe like one of my favorite scripts we've done, period, uh, was The Pledge from Megan O'Connor this year. And it was her first full-length play. 
And she was convinced for years that she wasn't an artist. And so she like got involved because we told her she had to get involved. And she's then, a friend of mine from high school. I didn't just pick a random person on the street. <laughs> but and we were able to coax out of her and introduce her to these opportunities. And she's an incredibly gifted playwright who I think has a very very long career in front of her if she keeps at it. And that grew from a lot of encouragement and a lot of suggesting opportunities and encouraging her to go after them, and a lot of really strong will on her side too. But. <laughs> Um, but She's yeah, just a absolutely. good example of it, though. Like we, we tend to push people once we realize they're open to being pushed. Like we'll push them and get them to try new things. And sometimes it doesn't work out, and that's okay. So we've yeah. had people who are like, "Wow, you're super organized and driven. You should try stage managing." And then they try it, and they say, "Why did you do this to me?" And you say, "We're so sorry. We'll never, <laughs> never do that again. to you again. But thank you so much for pushing through this. Here, have a cookie." Yeah. Um, so, but it's important to expose yourselves to those things because, especially as artists, if we're not learning and we're not constantly growing and exploring what else there is, we stagnate. So, I think it's important to provide those opportunities to people and also encourage people to take those opportunities to explore other paths. Sometimes, if you're not sure about something, it's just important to be able to look at it and say, "I'm not going to fucking do that again." <laughs> yeah. I have those things yeah. too. Like I'm not a lighting designer and I learned mm-hmm. that by trying a lighting design at Brelby. So never again. <laughs> well, can't fill a spot. So let's bounce back into the past again a little bit to do the genesis of this company. So I mean, you, you guys already mentioned that you, you knew when you were graduating that you weren't going to set up a company. So mm-hmm. where did that idea come from? Was it always the idea that you were going to create something where other people could to do their art and do your own art or were you going to go make it at I some think, point? Like, like, thing? Brian and I are both, uh, are both leaders. I think that was something that was really apparent to us in undergrad and part of why we gravitated towards each other as friends initially. Um, And so like, I think for me, I always knew that I wanted to like be my own boss and run something. And I also like, I love directing. Directing is my favorite aspect of theater. And the prospect of having to work my way up through the ranks at regional theaters was the worst. I just did not (laughs) want to have to do it. And I knew that I thought Brian had a lot of potential and natural gifts as a playwright. So you and married him. So <laughs> I married him. So I'd always have something to direct. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I thought that, well, I don't even know how we initially came to that conclusion, but part of it, if I remember correctly, like I, I always knew that I wanted to keep creating art because I had started producing at a really young age. Again, I start, started my first theater troupe when I was 17 or 18 mm-hmm. Um, and I like fell in love with it immediately. There was just something about creating from scratch and seeing what it did for all the people who got involved and the opportunities it presented. But also I fell so in love with playwriting as a playwright. It's difficult to get your plays produced unless you know a producer or you pursue your own opportunities. Mm -hmm. And we're both very entrepreneurially minded. So we knew we wanted to create our own opportunities, whether for playwriting or directing or acting, we weren't going to wait for people to give us those opportunities. And we thought, well, if we're giving ourselves opportunities, it means we get to give other people that leg mm-hmm. up too. So we started talking about what we wanted to do after college, and it was the typical conversation. Well, do we want to go to L.A.? The beach is nice, but not really. Do we want to go to Seattle? Shelby's cold all the time. That doesn't seem like a great idea. Do we want to go to New York? And it's really crowded, and all of our family is here. So it kind of started to make sense organically. Like, you know, we we have this community here that has this real need. We should really focus on trying to make it happen here. And I mean, if we want to start a theater company, all of these other places are already saturated with companies. Why don't we do one here where there's a need? 
and that was kind of the genesis of why we decided we yeah. wanted to focus but on Arizona. But a lot Arizona. of it was definitely creating our own opportunities, mm-hmm. for sure. I was not, I didn't fancy myself a playwright in undergrad at <laughs> all. I think um, I actually really started writing because I was on the group writing projects here. And so that was not even something I thought about. But I knew that for Brian, the best way to get his work seen would be for us to produce it ourselves. On that note, you can see one of my plays <laughs> coming up, opening uh, October 6th, Depend on Me, as uh, a dark comedy thriller uh, about two women who move in together after meeting each other online when one moves to town and things take a really quick, really dark turn. Uh, as one roommate becomes addicted to being needed by the other. There's Uh, also a puppy in it, a real one. There's a real puppy in the show, (laughs) and it's hilarious and really sad and also really dark. God, does the puppy die? It's... I don't know. You'll have to see the show. Spoilers. <laughs> um, I hope that's how it starts. I hope that's the first thing they see. Um, but it's it's going to be a really great show, and we get to start rehearsals on that uh, within about the next week to week and a half or so. So that's yeah. exciting. Um, so you should definitely come see that. It's gonna be good. And if you get Shogo, you can see it like six times for only 12 bucks total. So Very nice. This is true. It all comes together. Now, I'm, I'm curious, though, um, talking about this creating the company to something that you mentioned early on that that stuck out to me is you said you weren't a not-for-profit so how did that, why did you decide to go that router well, we're yeah. really we're in a really strange little gray area where we're kind of an independent theater company so we're technically an llc which means we're financially responsible if things go south mm-hmm. and we had to bootleg and get everything started up ourselves but we do operate under the fiscal sponsorship of fractured atlas which is a nonprofit out of New York that supports small arts organizations. So we can still accept grants, we can still accept tax-deductible donations through, through the fiscal sponsor, uh, but we, as our own organization, are free of the control of a board. Um, and the reason we thought that was important is because right when we were starting, and we do have an advisory board mm-hmm. that helps us make decisions and helps us grow and find connections, but our artistic principles are never at risk or having to bend to the will of someone who doesn't understand what we're trying to accomplish. Um, But when we first started out, it was right in the middle of the economy being terrible. So we were trying to start in 2005, basically, right? When we were starting all the paperwork and whatnot. Yeah. And during that year we were planning, we were watching Arizona lost like 12 theater companies at the time because all of the institutional grants went away all of the donors got terrified and stopped donating and the companies couldn't figure out how to sustain themselves without relying on all those contributed funds. So we thought this is going to be hard. We have no delusion that this is going to be the hardest thing we we're ever going to do in our lives. And it has been, but, um, but we designed a model that was intentionally scrappy, that was operating on a shoestring budget, but trying to use every dollar as efficiently as possible mm-hmm. so that we could sustain on ticket sales and try to grow from there. And we've made it to this point, uh, something like 95% on ticket sales alone. We've done fundraisers, we've gotten lucky and gotten a couple grants, um, but the bulk of everything sustained the theater has been from ticket sales. Now, we are in the process of starting up a Brelby Foundation. We've just sent off all the applications to set up that 501c3 to kind of be our own fiscal sponsor as opposed to an outside group out of state. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do are working in that direction. Uh, but by being an independent theater as opposed to a traditional nonprofit, it's allowed us to make decisions more quickly to adapt when we need to and to make sure that the focus on the art we want to create and providing opportunities is always the number one focus and we're never having to 
worry about a new board member deciding they want to see the 455th production of Annie. <laughs> so, n- nothing against Annie. It's a wonderful gateway theater <laughs> experience, but that's just not who we are as a company. That's fair. Okay, interesting. Cool, yeah, because I, I was curious because I, I feel like you just don't see that very often, so I was wondering, like, like what... It's true. Yeah, I came about that, but... A large, a large amount of our business decisions mm-hmm. when we were starting out were shaped by a class we took at NAU with mm-hmm. Mac Groves. We took theater management, and we <laughs> learned a lot in that class, a lot mm-hmm. about what we did and didn't want and what we could see working around the country and what was apparently failing. And I don't know that I think the situation's the same nine years later now than it was when we found it but mm-hmm. it was definitely the right decision for us at the time absolutely and we are we are trying to figure out the sponsorship yeah. side of things and the donor relationship side of things we know that's a very long road because that's not where we started but we know that's we need to figure that out to really grow to get to the point that we can pay artists a livable wage which is the end goal mm-hmm. um but that's a process so if people <laughs> are interested in joining mm-hmm. a board uh to help us get that set up and figure those things out we are looking f- to develop our board further. So they should definitely reach out to Brian at Robbie.com and I can meet you up and explain to you what we're all about and see if it's something you want to get involved in. Talking about getting involved too. Um, so you mentioned that you were going to be writing for another theater company's 24-hour theater. There seems to be... The arts is one of those interesting things where like there there should be, for all intents and purposes, like a very competitive angle to it between theater companies. We're all fighting for butts in the seats, but it seems like it's a very collaborative thing even between companies. So, I mean, how do you guys address that as people who are owning one? Yeah, I mean, there's a saying, I don't really remember where we heard it first, but the rising tide floats all ships. Mm-hmm. Vincent Van Lee from Phoenix Theater when mm-hmm. we were renting out the Viad uh, Playhouse on the por- Park. Um, but yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. Like, Arizona's big problem with the arts isn't support for the arts, it's awareness for the arts. So the more support the theater community gives to itself, the more we're going to be able to develop the community and the audience base as a whole. Exactly. So, I mean, we we really strongly value partnerships with other arts organizations. Um, we have a wonderful working relationship with Peoria Theater Works. Brian and I are actually directing one of their youth works main stages coming up this winter i'm doing the fight choreography for their upcoming production of frankenstein Mm -hmm. we taught uh directed one of their summer camp shows for kids over the summer yeah Uh, we have a great relationship with space 55 and Dwayne over there yeah we had um stray cat uh, associate artistic director lewis farber directed our season opener peter and starcatcher there's there's definitely room for sharing and for collaborating and i think that the more the community opens up to that the better the more successful we'll all be yeah and i noticed that also like going on with the community thing like you are part of the board of the zonies too now right yes i'm the vice president of the zonies (laughs) so i mean what what role do you feel like awards play in like generating interest in the community or i guess Buzz. It's interesting because the, yeah. the board has definitely been going through a lot of changes in the last year and a half or so. It's a it's a fairly newish board. Like there's a lot of new faces on it. Um, three out of the four executive members have joined the board in the last year. So um, Rob Stewart is our president. Gil Benbrook is our treasurer. Uh, and Mary Beth Reeves over at Desert for the Hills Theater is our secretary. But she's been with it for a while. But we've, we've been trying really to to take into account the feedback that the community has given about the Zonies and to really push it to become something that everyone can be proud of and everyone would want to be associated with. 
So as opposed to it being this like really competitive cutthroat thing, we're trying to turn it into more of a celebration of the community. So yes, there are awards and yes, it's like an honor to be nominated and to win these awards. But the real goal is to get members from all of these participating theaters together for one night to just be like, look at all this art we made this year. And that's amazing. And we should all be able to celebrate all of it. And it's also great from a, a producer's standpoint to say, to use it as a marketing tool. So when you do get those nominations, to be able to tell your community, especially your maybe non-theater goers that need that extra push, like to be able to say, hey, you should really come see one of our shows. You know, this past season, we were nominated for nine Zony Awards for theater excellence. And it's kind of that that little extra push of like, oh, oh, this isn't just some kids in their backyard putting on some skits. <laughs> so it, it can help bridge that gap between the already committed theater goer and the theater community that is and mm-hmm. the potential audience members that don't realize how good the theater scene in Arizona is that's literally just on the other side of the road or in their backyard and they don't know yeah. that what they're missing. So that's that gravitas to it a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Same way that Moonlight can be released on like a wide release <laughs> after being nominated by yes. Best Picture, but no one saw before that. Exactly. Kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. Love it. Definitely. And maybe the Zonies don't quite have that level of gravitas <laughs> yet, but but it lends some credibility yeah. to the community as a whole, which is really valuable. Yeah, it's definitely, and one of the goals for sure that the Zonies are pushing towards is to help be a bridge for all of the theaters that are participating to, to help advocate for them as a whole. We're looking at lots of different potential ways that we can help market the theaters. Uh, we've talked about creating a theater map where all the participating theaters would be a part of it and we could have it in the lobbies of all of the theaters that are members so that new audience members who come and see a show can be like, what? There are 40 theaters in town? I have no idea. So. It's definitely something that we're aware of and we're trying to help as well because audience retention and audience awareness is such a huge challenge. And uh, they, they do a lot with like youth theater and stuff as well. And like you guys were saying that you're going to be helping out with some youth productions and you guys have some youth productions on your schedule that you've been doing the last couple of years too. So when did that become like a part of what you guys were going for here? And I mean, what how important is it that you, that you guys contribute super, to stuff like that super important. Yeah. and i think it's important to know that we have there's a distinction like we do mm-hmm. we do one or two plays for young audiences so mm-hmm. all of our actors are adults so it's kind of right. like child's play this is a theater for young audiences yeah. not youth theater yeah. yeah but the youth theater scene in town mm-hmm. is nuts like i don't think people really realize the, the caliber mm-hmm. of performances that are happening around town from the youth it's it's insane like, I saw a production of Lame Is at TheaterWorks this year that was, like, mind-blowing. Well, it was mind-blowing. American Idiot over at Spotlight was, was so one of the best productions I saw in the last year to two years. Yeah. And these kids just, and a big part of it was just the passion that the kids have for it. It just speaks to them. It's so important. Uh, which, the the nature of the youth theater scene is part of why we, put, we do the theater for young audiences, but... Uh, we haven't yet dabbled into doing youth productions yet because our neighbors and our partners and collaborators, TheaterWorks and Spotlight Youth, have such strong programs. Whenever we can, we try to push the kids over to those theaters and then try to maintain the relationship so that they get pushed back our way as they start to age out and they can start doing more of the the newer works and things like that. So it's kind of a, a really nice development tool to kind of help develop the community. But... And we have great relationships with both theaters. And it's like that across the valley. Like, the youth theater scene is amazing. And they complement the adult theaters so well. 
That's true. It's true. Yeah, Desert Foothills Theater also has a really, really Incredible wonderful program. youth program. Their production of All Shook Up was so good this year. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Well, I think about time to kind of wrap it up before we go too far with it. Um, but a um, couple things I'd like to ask everybody at the end of it. Uh, first off, you guys can answer this as uh, as a joint or individually. Is there any kind of other artists you'd want to shout out? Anybody of any disciplines you feel like need to get some recognition? I mean, I think we've name dropped him a little bit mm-hmm. in this podcast, but John Perovich, I think he's one of the best playwrights I've ever encountered, let alone just in the Valley. Um, we're really privileged to have him involved with us. And I think the work he's doing with his new company is, is really wonderful and is going to do some really interesting things to stir up the arts community. I, I think I'm going to second that as well, because not only is he super involved here in helping us develop new playwrights, and he started his new company, which is based out of Metro Arts downtown, um, but he more than, I, I think anyone I've met, cares so much about developing other people's skills. Like He's already one of the most talented playwrights I've ever worked with, but he has such a... In, a pure interest in helping other people find their voice as playwrights and give them the tools they need to get better and grow and follow up with them it's i he by himself could change the face of theater in arizona and we're glad to have him here we're glad to have him a part of brelby and support him and everything he does and the fact that he's so active in supporting us so he's actually downstairs directing a show right now or (laughs) directing a rehearsal right now so but he's incredible um but we have our entire ensemble is amazing our core company member members are invaluable and keep us afloat um we, it would take all night to talk about yeah all i'll do like people. a really quick one sentence shout out though to luke gomez who has moved to la to pursue his writing career and we were really honored to have him with the company as long as we did he was at the very first informational meeting in our apartment for Relby, and we produced a lot of his work he was on our stage he directed like he's he worked with us for about nine years so we're really excited to see him take the next step and move out to la and we wish him all the luck and yeah hopefully he keeps occasionally sending scripts back to us (laughs) i don't know he was my first uh, interviews as well but now he's in la so fuck him uh uh, okay um so beyond that i know you've mentioned a couple things that you want to plug already so depend on me is coming up you have miscast coming up so so we have we have our last weekend in the miscast concert coming up this weekend so on friday night and saturday night at 7 30 p.m uh, you can catch some mixed-up musical theater antics. Um, our improv team, Results May Vary, performs twice a month, so we always have performances the second Saturday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday of the month at 10 p.m. Uh, admission is only 10 bucks. It's an hour of crazy fun. So. And if you're on show go, then you get to just kind of show up. So. so true, so true. And then the play that we mentioned that's rehearsing downstairs right now is Whisper Sweetly, which is actually by another NAU alum, Devin Mahon. Um, and it's being directed by John Perovich. It's like, uh, how to even describe it? It's this really creepy, interesting play. It's an original mythology about the origins of daylight savings time. And it's like a thriller. There's lots of coffee involved. <laughs> and I don't want to spoil anything for sure. But... It's, it's a really creepy kind of origin fairy tale. Yeah. But the long story short, don't fall asleep during daylight savings. Um, yes. Terrible, terrible things will happen if you fall asleep during daylight savings. And you should really come see the show to find out because 
Devin Mahon's brain is one of the most twisted things I've ever encountered, and this play is all sorts of amazing. <laughs> so that opens mid-September. Also opening mid-September is an original adaptation of The Time Machine, and this is one of our plays for young audiences. So it's one act, very like short, fast-paced. It's good for kids with short attention spans, but it's also good for adults. It's one of those Shrek-type shows where it's like, <laughs> we threw some stuff in for the parents. Um, but it's, it's being directed by Alana Lydia, um, who runs B3, uh, is the Associate Artistic Director for B3 Theatre Company that operates out of uh, the Six Senses space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, check it out. All the info is available at brelby.com. You can get tickets there. You can also look for more information about Showgo or about getting involved with us. Yeah, that's also where they get in touch with you if they were interested in stage managing or Absolutely. interested in talking to you about board member positions, that type Definitely. of thing. Yeah. And then I know you said that the, there was a cutoff this Friday for something that you Yeah, were so at. we uh, we're still accepting applications for the writing circle for next year for Return to Rosie's Pub. So um, as long as people get materials in by f- the end of day on Friday, they can be considered for that writing team. What kind of materials are you looking for? So there's a list of questions that they have to answer, a little like survey to get to know them a little bit, and then also a, a brief writing sample. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Any other things around the corner you guys want to throw out there? Uh, well, I mean, we're about to have our first baby in about a month, so that's <laughs> right. exciting. So if you do get involved, be warned that mm-hmm. in there's going to be a toddler around at some point in time. But She'll really be running the show. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And that's we can true. also reach the baby through belby.com. Yeah, exactly. Yes. exactly. Uh, <laughs> great. Well, congratulations on that, too. And uh, Last thing I'd like to ask, I'll wrap up, um, if, if you were running into somebody who is just starting off trying to go down the same path you guys were um, in Phoenix today, what advice would you want to give them? I, a lot. I would want to take them to coffee and give them a lot of advice <laughs> um, to make sure that they learn from our mistakes. <laughs> but um, the first and foremost is believe in yourself and know that it's going to get really hard sometimes and to persevere because if you really believe in it, it's worth pushing through and you're going to get there. But also surround yourself with people that you trust and don't tolerate uh, people who don't believe in what you're pushing for and aren't willing to meet you halfway. Yeah. I would second that. I would say find your people and hold on to them, but don't be afraid to cut ties with people who are toxic and are trying to bring down what you're trying to create. Um, I think that we've only survived this long because of the truly wonderful, positive people that have wanted to see this thrive Mm -hmm. and grow. Um, We're the figureheads, but... It's definitely not just about us. There's been there've been a lot of insanely talented and wonderful people who've helped us get this far. And also, if you are taking the same path we did, reach out to us. Like again, we're huge advocates of the theater as a whole. We would love to do anything we can to help support you and help you get your feet off the ground. Uh, including if I mean, we have a courtyard. If you need somewhere to rehearse, <laughs> we'll figure out a way to help you. Excellent. Absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much, guys. Find your people. Believe in yourself. I love it. And Brian and Shelby, thank you again. Thank you.